Amen. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you have your Bible with you, 1 Corinthians 4. Once again, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. Uh, Chapter 4, we're only going through two verses today. Uh, Two verses, but they have three very important questions embedded in those verses. And so I wanted to make sure we spent time on those questions because I think they're very important for us as believers, as for people living in this world today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, we'll kind of touch on verse 8, but that really will happen more next week. So 1 Corinthians, and then I'm going to ask you to just set your Bible down for a second, because we're going to talk about what's going on in the world. Um, Every once in a while, you need to stop as a pastor and explain some Bible things. And so I'm going to explain some Bible things that pertain to what's going on in Israel. Um, A lot of times we don't explain stuff correctly in order for us as Christians to have the correct understanding of where we should stand on some things biblically, okay? So here we go. First of all, we have to remember that Israel, the nation, is very special to God. We read in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, these words. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all of the peoples on the face of the planet to be his people his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, With that thought in mind, we live here in the United States, and one of the United States of America's most worthwhile accomplishments has been its consistent regard to the plight of the Jewish nation. No nation in the history of the world has a better record of treating individual Jewish people with respect than does the United States. And the same can be said for our befriending of the nation of Israel. Now, I think all of us in this room know that we as the states of America have committed many sins. We well deserve judgment. But as a nation, we have been the consistent friend of the Jewish people and the nation of Israel and its chief protector. In 1948, President Truman helped persuade the United Nations to recognize Israel as a nation, and the United States was the first to recognize them. And since then, the United States has contributed billions and billions of dollars to aid in Israel. 
we have to understand this as Christians, everyone. The biblical declarations found in the Bible of God's love and care for his chosen, chosen people, the nation of Israel, and from the history of nations that have actually been destroyed because of their evil dealings with God's chosen people, the Jewish people. And remember, we follow a Savior who came from where? Israel. Jewish. God used them to have Jesus be Redeemer and King. And where will the new Jerusalem be? Where will Jesus' throne be? Israel. We have to remember that biblically. Christian believers should support God's chosen people. And the Bible... Conflict would always characterize the relationship between the descendants of Isaac and Ishmael. It's in the Bible. And sadly, we know that in Scripture, this conflict continues until Jesus comes back. And when Jesus comes back, he judges the nations and he sets up his reign for peace on earth in his kingdom. So we must always look at the big picture. We always must look at everything going on in the world with a biblical worldview as believers. And you need to know where I stand. Because I'm preaching at you all the time. As your pastor, we as a church will always support Israel's right to exist. says in Genesis 12, 3, woe to anyone who seeks to defeat now. We're going to pray for what's going on there. A lot of innocent people, including Americans that have been killed. Americans that are now hostages, we've found out as well. We now know that there's missiles coming from the north, not just the south. It's a full-blown war. It's another war. But this one's got a twist in it because this is a biblical one. Okay? If you need to talk to me a little bit more about that, you're like, hey, I'm a little confused on that. I don't really think that's right. You can talk to me, and I'll explain to you even more what's going on. I want to be succinct as possible with that this morning. That being said, obviously, I feel a weight every week as the pastor of this local church to uh, stand before you and week after week unfold the Word of God. I don't know if you guys get that every once in a while. You sit there and you go, uh, God, why me? Because that's a, that's a big weight. Uh, 
when you think about it. I know it's his words, not my words, but it's, it's a weight because you sit there and you go, man, I better, I better be communicating this the way God wants this communicated, that this is not me speaking, that this is God using Scott. And we have to understand that God's word is perfect, amen? 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed. So it's all breathed out by God. It's spoken by the Spirit. It's useful, as it says there, for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training. For what purpose? Righteousness. And there are times, and we land on one of these today, that the Word of God speaks a word of correction, of rebuke or, or warning, and this is, this is one of them. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 4, live, uh, the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It's penetrating, dividing spirit, soul, joints, and, and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid before His eyes. And it's to Him that we give an account. And as I look at that, I I, I think of Jesus, for example, and the vision that the Apostle John had on the island of of Patmos, of the the vision of the resurrected, glorified Christ moving through the seven golden lampstands representing local churches, and he moves through those seven lampstands, and he describes them in many ways. But one of the things he said with, with blazing fire in his eyes, these holy eyes that see straight through us. He says, I'm going to remove your lampstand to the churches that don't teach his word. When, when he looks, when he looks at a man sitting under a tree, And he says, now here is a true Israelite, Nathaniel, in in whom there is nothing false. And and the response back is, how do you know me? Well, I saw you. I saw you under the fig tree. Those holy eyes gazing into the hearts of men. The rich young ruler comes and has that conversation, if you know it, and he caps it off by saying those incredibly dumb words, I have done everything that your law has said. And Jesus looks at him, and you can just see Jesus lean in and go, one thing you lack. And he lays it out straight to him. And the saddest part is, is the guy says, essentially, yeah, you're right, and there's no way I'm going to give that up. And he walks away. The Holy Spirit here in this section of Scripture is giving Paul those holy eyes to see what's going on in the church in Corinth at that time. 
And what he's dealing with there is, well, the danger of people boasting pridefully in God's gifts. The Corinthians were terrible boasters. They were arrogant. They, they were incredibly gifted. They had lots of spiritual gifts at work. And because of that, they thought they were better than other people. They were arrogant. In the very next chapter, chapter 5, will be a very interesting chapter to go through as a church. He deals with the church discipline issue, and, and he says you should have dealt with the sin before, before you got so proud about being who you are. And there is this danger, everyone, of boasting pridefully in God's gifts. And we see that here starting in verse 6 of chapter 4, where it says, you know, now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us in the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over or against the other. Now, it's not completely clear what that saying, do not go beyond what is written, applies to, but it's obvious that the Corinthian believers were familiar with that statement. And, and some people speculate that it refers to the Old Testament quotations that Paul had referenced in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2, or even the, the theological statements that he had written up to the point in this letter. Most likely, though, the saying refers to a general principle that everything a believer does should be based on biblical truth. In saying, do not go beyond what is written, Paul wants his readers to understand that the words and the teaching of Scripture are ultimately sufficient and true. Truth is not dependent on your personality or charisma, especially of those who, who teach and, and share their opinions. Man, there are just some really charismatic people that will get up front and will say some things that at, at the moment, because of the charisma and because of the personality, you're just, you clip into the, this must be true. This seems so true. And, and Paul's already said, if you remember, the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Get that? The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise. Those are reckless. Psalm 94, we've got to remember once again those holy eyes of God. Yahweh. favoritism some in the church wanted again wants to follow or listen to just certain believers and 
uh, are leaders, and, and yes, Paul and Apollos are used because that's, a, you know, for Paul, he's like, I'm setting up the two most known, but there's way more than that going on here. And as a result of being in these little factions, it appears that some of the believers were conducting themselves in a way that went beyond what was appropriate as followers of Jesus. What we could say then is that they were listening to the words of their preferred leader more than they were listening to the words of Scripture. And Paul is challenging this mindset amongst the the Corinthian church by stating that his desire among them, as we remember in chapter 2, verse 2, was them to know nothing except Jesus himself. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Do not go beyond what is written means to focus on Jesus and His Word above all else. It means this, everyone. It means to trust that the Bible has the answers. That the Bible has the truths. It has the answers. It has the truths that we need to live this holy and pleasing life before God. It is what guides us. The very last chapter of the Bible deals with this idea of don't go beyond what is written. Now, how many of you would think, nah, that doesn't happen at all today? (laughs) It happens all the time. There are so many people and a lot of pastors, I'm just going to tell you the truth there, that get up front, tell you some bits and pieces of what God's Word says, and then give you their opinion that if you listen to it close enough, doesn't match the rest of what God's Word says. And Paul's going, don't go beyond what is written. Romans, I'm sorry, Revelation 22, verse 18 and 19. There is a warning. Do not add or subtract. Do not add or subtract with the words of God. So we must consider all Scripture as sacred and do not tamper with it. Do not go beyond what is written. Does that make sense, everyone? Amen? All right, let's move. So he lands on this. Don't have, because when you go beyond what is written, that's pretty arrogant. Wouldn't you agree? I know what it says, but I think this is more accurate. Yeah, That doesn't work. You're now saying, yeah, I know what God said, but I think I'm better. Remember many, many years ago, meeting with with two guys that were missionaries from the, the Mormon church. And it was really an interesting thing, everyone, because in the area that I had this youth ministry that had a lot of kids coming to it, the Mormon church there didn't have any youth activities, so they were sending our kid, their kids to our youth group. 
And all of a sudden, I get a call saying, hey, we need to meet with you. I'm like, oh, this is going to be a joy. I, I am going to love every second of this. And so we sit down, and, you know, two, two young guys, and, you know, and I was young myself. I was probably like 25 years old. We sit down, and they're like, yeah, we have a problem with what you're telling our kids in your youth group. And I'm like, you do realize that we are a Christian church. Yeah, but you're following the Bible too closely. And I was like, oh, bring this on. Please tell me I'm following the Bible too closely. Yeah, our kids are getting confused. And I was like, amen. I want them to get confused because your teachings go beyond what the Bible says, beyond what is written. It, it, it didn't go well. And one of the guys said, yeah, I really wish God didn't say that. And I just stopped and I said, that's a pretty arrogant statement. I think you should go to God and tell him that and see how that works out. Paul, in his second letter to the church in Corinth, said this in verse 20 of chapter 12, I'm afraid that perhaps when I come I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife and jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, slanderers, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. So in order to humble them, he had to do something. He had to slay their pride. And by the way, just as a different side note, what's the difference between being humble and being humbled? To be humble is a great thing. To be humbled is a process. We need to be humble, but all of us, all the time, need to allow God to humble us, to be humbled. And Paul is seeking to humble them, and he works it with three questions, three pressing questions. One, in verse 7 there, who, who makes you different than anyone else? That's the first question. In one way, I think it's valid. You could say this, look, I'm no different than you are. We're all the same. We're all created in the image of God. We can go to Ephesians chapter 2 through 4. We could say one in sin, one in death, one in Christ, one in life, one in the Lord. Yes, we can say all of that. We're not different in that way, but I don't think that's what Paul's getting at here. There's actual differences among us. We're not identical, thank goodness. We have different roles to play in the body of Christ. Later on, he does say there's one body with many members, and the members don't have all the same function. There's the hand, there's the foot, there's the eye. You go on. Different spiritual gifts, and not only that, some people have spiritual gifts in an exceeding measure beyond others. 
so it is here with these spiritual gifts. There are differences. And Paul's asking, look, look carefully. Who makes you different than anyone else then? In light of those spiritual gifts, who makes you different than anyone else? You are different, but who made you that way? With those talents and gifts, they are not the result of your own cleverness. God did it. It's essentially God that makes us different from each other. And that should humble us. If I'm different than you, if I'm maybe better or worse in whatever in terms of the level of spiritual gifting in certain areas, that's humbling. On a Thursday night, we've got some people that come in here and I am humbled by their giftedness and their spiritual giftedness of prayer. I'm just humbled by it. It's awesome. My response to it is, please pray more. So who makes you different? However God has wired you with those gifts and talents, remember God wired you with those gifts and talents. That second question then goes into that. What do do you have that you did not receive? It's a humbling question. Look at the gifts and talents that God has given you. Look at the situation that you live in and the world that you are. James chapter 1 says, Every good and perfect gift that, has, that you have ever received comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights who doesn't change like shifting shadows. Everything you've received, where you were born, when you were born, who your parents were, what your intellectual gifts are, what your physical gifts are, what your spiritual gifts are, how you were converted, all of those things, you received those. Amen? You received those. You receive, you receive, you receive. They are called gifts for a reason. John answered, The man in John 3.27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it had been given him from heaven. What do you have that's yours that you did not receive? Uh, Everything? It's meant to be a humbling question. We should be way more thankful than we are. That's why we should be singing songs like, Praise the Lord, O my soul, O my innermost being, praise His holy name. We forget His many benefits. Everything we have is a gift from God, all of it. Our possessions, our clothing, our houses, our cars, our money, all of it. We've received those things. Romans 12, for 
Through the grace given to me, I say to each one among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound thinking as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So that was the second question. The third question embedded in verse 7 there. And if you did receive it, then why do you boast as though you did not? Now, what does that mean? Why do you boast as you did not receive it, but you did it yourself? That's what it means. The gifts from God glorifies the giver, not the receiver. The glory goes to the giver, and so all of the gifts will rebound up into heaven to the glory of God. We will find out ultimately how it all worked, how they were given, how they were dispensed, and what God was up to with all of it. And we'll be casting the crowns that we've received because of those gifts. We'll be casting the crowns before him and giving God the glory. This, this crown of righteousness, this crown of the works that I have done for him because of what he has given to me, I am going to realize when I am in his presence that all of those gifts were given by him for his glory. This crown is his. So, I think we ought to just be under those three questions continually in our own lives because they're very humbling. They rip the pride off of us with like a scouring pad. And that's what Paul's doing. Don't be arrogant, be humble. And, and, and then in verse 8 and going forward, he turns to the danger uh, of basically seeking a crown without the cross. And he's going to roll up his sleeves and, and pour on his strongest acid bath really on them to get them totally cleansed off. I, I grew up with my, my dad uh, having a company. We sold restaurant equipment, all right? You would go into 90% of restaurants fail in the first year, and you would go in and rebuy the restaurant equipment that you just sold to the guy at pennies on the dollar. And you would take them out, and they're all stainless steel and all that, and you would give them an acid bath. You'd clean them all up, they'd look brand new, and you'd resell them. But you had to clean them all up. And that's what Paul is doing. Many of us are seeking the comfort and the eternal glories of Christianity without the process of the suffering that leads to it. The, the church in Corinth wanted the glory of heaven without the suffering. You know, a life of comfort and praise and success and pleasure. No one naturally 
wants to be hated or assaulted, imprisoned, impoverished, slaughtered. No one wants that. It's not normal to want those things. You know, the, the, Cor- the Corinth congregation, the people there, they're no different than us. The danger is the same for us as it was for them. The more we avoid what it takes to follow Jesus in this world, the more we build with wood and hay and stubble then day and day and day and day out. The more we avoid the cross, you've got to remember the cross is what was necessary to take our sins. That sacrifice of Christ, the more we avoid the cross, the more alluring the world is to us. The more enticed we'll be after worldly things. And Paul is seeking to a very specific degree to kind of shock us out of that complacency into a lifestyle where we ask these questions that remind us that everything is a gift from God, that it's all His and it's all for His glory, but there is a price in this world. And that's where we hit the application for just a few minutes here. There's this idea in Scripture, and I'm going to use way non-theological terms for this, but the idea is the already not yet idea of Scripture. The already but not yet aspect. There are many things that we already have as Christians. And some things we do not. Christ has already come. He has already lived. He has already died on the cross for sinners like you and me. And he's already raised from the dead. And he's already ascended to the right hand of God. That is our gospel. And as Christians, people on earth, we have already heard this message. And we are already receiving full forgiveness of sins. through faith in Christ. Amen? Amen. And let me just stop and take a drink. And let me also stop and say, if that's not happened to you, I, I thank you so much that you're here today. Because guess what you get to hear right now? The already, the gospel. All that you do is tainted by sin without Christ. And all that you need to do to have full forgiveness of sins is something that doesn't even require you to move from your seat. You just have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. (coughs) That He died on the cross for you. And you needed that done. Or else you would be separated from God forever. You need a Savior. I need a Savior. Who is that Savior? Jesus. Jesus is your Savior when you call on Him in your heart. And what you do, what what do I what must I do to be saved? 
You say, save me. Save me, Jesus. Save me, Jesus. I repent of my sins. I now turn to follow you and you alone. That's the gospel. That's an already. That's already here. And if that happens, the weird part to any of this, and you've got to imagine, it's just weird. How fast are you saved? Instantly. Isn't that weird? Instantaneously. You receive full forgiveness. Instantaneously, you're adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. It's the already, it's the already, it's the already, but there are some things that have not yet happened. And that's why we have to consider this section of Scripture that we were talking about yet, where it says, do not go beyond what is written. We must consider all Scripture as sacred. We do not tamper with it. In other words, we do not go beyond what is written. It is the very Word of God. And Scripture says, see, it hasn't happened yet, but we don't go, we, what do we, we don't go beyond what is written. Scripture says Christ's kingdom is not yet fully here. And so we are called to pray, as Jesus said to pray, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the not yet. There are many, many people who have not yet accepted Christ as Savior. They're elect. They haven't accepted him yet. There's the not yet. Why has Jesus not come back? Because the not yet. That not everyone that's going to accept him has accepted him. When does Jesus come back? When that's done. Not one will be forgotten. Not one will be left behind. Many of those people live in other countries. They've just not heard the message of Christ yet. And the great work of salvation has not yet happened in their lives. Also, we need to understand that Satan and his evil forces are not yet evicted from their thrones of power. And we have seen that in our world every single day. And you've seen it in your own families on how it affects everything. They still hold sway here on this planet. We are not free from sin that's here on earth. We are free from sin inside of us. That's the already. We are not free from sin around us. That's the not yet. Another thing, I don't mean to surprise you by this, but you have not yet received your resurrection body. Some of you are going, amen, hallelujah. And you understand very well, I have not received my resurrection body. 
And some of you may be going, I'm not sure I could get any better. I refer you back to the what you have been given, who gave that to you. But we're not in the new Jerusalem. It is not descended from heaven. And we are not yet beautifully dressed as the bride of Christ at that time. That has not yet happened. But don't go beyond what is written. So the beauty of that is I'm not going beyond what is written. And because I've not gone beyond what is written, I can look at what is written. And what is yet to come looks pretty good to me. But you see, the Corinthians were acting like the work was already done. That they were already there. And they weren't. They wanted a separate peace, really, with the pagan world that surrounded them. And I think this is the danger, everyone. This idea, they wanted Christ's enemies in Corinth to love them and praise them and shower benefits upon them. And that's that's not written. That's going beyond what is written. You see, they wanted to be esteemed and honored and welcomed and celebrated and given the pleasure of a comfortable, successful, worldly life. And in many ways, you can picture them as sleepwalking towards a cliff. And next week, we'll pick up on what Paul does to counteract that so that we don't do that in our own lives or we don't do that as a church. So may I remind you right now of the three questions. And I want you to answer in your own mind as I do this. Who makes you different than anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive. And if you did receive it, then why do you boast as though you did not? That it, you did it yourself. Let's pray together right now. Lord, I thank you.